Hello and welcome to Uncredible Adventures with me, Cornelius. This is the story-based podcast that takes you places from the comfort of your own headphones. I'm really pleased to have you with me. An interesting, funny and a little bit informative podcast for you today. I've called this episode Highland Shames, which is a name I was pretty proud with. It sums up the episode pretty well, but it wasn't actually my first pick when I was... Writing this, the episode was going to be called Gardelou, Gardelou, which was something I learned from the Edinburgh dungeons when I went on a tour. And you learn about the early days of Edinburgh before they had indoor plumbing. People used to open top floor windows and chuck out their chamber pots and their wastewater directly out onto the street. And the cry at the time was Gardelou, which, of course, is French for beware of the water. That was a really clever name, which hopefully. If you listen to this episode and get to the end of it, you'll understand why I was so pleased with that name. But it didn't work so well for the way I was labelling the podcast and tempting people in and thinking it was something they wanted to listen to. So I've come with Highland Shames, but now I've got you unofficially titled Garde Lou. And I'm going to talk in a little bit about changing names and the importance of a name for a piece of creative work or for anything really. Slightly different episode if you've listened to the previous three episodes. Trying something a little bit different on this one tonight. Um, You'll have noticed one of the things I do in in the previous episode is I take a train of thought and follow it. Talk about the stories, the people, the feelings and the things that have happened. And a few times I say, oh, I should have checked the facts on that. Or I should have checked the data or work out what I'm talking about. And I, I do this live from a mic and pretty much from the top of my head. I've done something very slightly different because I was thinking about what I was going to talk about on this episode and some memories I had. And it is linked to a bigger piece of history that actually I know nothing about. And the time it happened, I was completely ignorant. So I did a little bit of reading just to, to fill myself in in what I'm talking about tonight and discovered that a really interesting event in the history of Scotland or the Scottish Highlands called the Highland Clearances. And, and reading about it, had a real effect on me and I wanted to share some of that. I knew I needed to talk about it. So not turning this into a history podcast, but I'm just trying something a little bit different, something that I have rehearsed tonight for part of the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know if it works. Of course, it all comes from feedback. So let me know if you like it and maybe we'll move slightly more in that direction. And if it doesn't, well, look, we'll try something else. So it's a historical story. It goes a very, very long way back that I'm telling, but just fair warning, it's pretty brutal. The Highland Clearances was a pretty unpleasant time um, and there were grave injustices done to a great many people. So if you're feeling a little bit delicate, if you've got let the, the news of the day, the things that are going on currently get on top of you, fair warning, might not be something you want to listen to. I'm going to put a quick warning in before it starts in the actual episode so you'll be able to pause and skip the pieces that potentially contain uh, less salubrious details. Although having said that, I do think some of the world events that are going on at the moment were probably a big reason as to why this story really stood out to me and why it chimed with me and, and why I want to try and tell the story of some of the people that lived through this. But I have definitely noticed over the last couple of years, really, and especially at the moment, the increasing number of people that I talk to or you see online who talk about just how fast the world appears to be changing at the moment, how we've had in the space of a few years, there's been three or four once in a lifetime events and things that are completely unique to the people on earth. And of course, we're well aware of big events coming in the future, all of which seem pretty ominous for the for the human race and for, for life on earth, frankly. And I, I know that can, certainly with me, that gets on top of me sometimes. You look at it and you wonder where's the hope. I've seen a lot of people commenting either from, from jokes saying, or, you know, millennials now that have lived through five end of... Millennials now that have lived through five once-in-a-lifetime events in the last two years... But also people saying there is so much news, there's so much change, there's so many unusual things happening. It feels like chaos. It feels like the world has shifted on its axis and everything's going wrong. So if you do feel like that, I just want to share something that I take comfort in. And hopefully you might be able to find a little bit of comfort in it. And it it works like this. 
The first piece of advice, which you probably already know very well, is if you can control something, then you shouldn't be worrying about it. So if there is an event or something going on in your life or indeed in the world that you can take action to improve or prevent or jump on, if you're worried about something going on at work or something in your personal life, if you have the power and the agency to change it, that's what you should be doing instead of worrying. So change so you need to make the effort to change the things you can but the other flat side of that coin is that you need to learn to not worry about the things you can't change if something is out of your control if something's bigger than you if something then you you're fully entitled indeed it's it's best for you just to leave it alone it's not worth worrying about and that's pretty difficult when a lot of the the big news stories and a lot of the things we're looking at all appear to end in doom so there might be a bit of odd comfort to be found in the idea that although it feels like things are changing faster than they ever have, although it feels like there's more uncertainty, there's more chaos, although it feels perhaps at the moment like the world is less stable than it's ever been, that is an illusion. The world has never been stable. Human, The human race does not do stable. We don't operate like that. And unfortunately constant change is the only thing that is stable or certain in this world is that things will change one of the reasons why it feels like the change or the uncertainty is bigger now than it ever has been is because it's happening right now and you don't know how it resolves you don't know the outcome whereas any time in history either in your own life or in history before you were even born you can look back at that and you know how it ended, you know the outcome, whether it was good or bad, at least you know exactly what the outcome was and what the, how it finished. Whether it was good or bad, you know the outcome, you know the result, there's no uncertainty attached to it. So although some things are very bad, undeniably awful things happen, when you know the outcome, when you know the entire scope of it, when there's no uncertainty about where it's going to lead, it's very difficult to feel the same level of emotional investment that you do during the middle of something when you have no idea where it's heading because it's almost impossible to stop your brain racing ahead and thinking of all the terrible outcomes that could come. Whereas when you look back on any event from the past or even from your own past, generally speaking, you know the outcome. There's no uncertainty. You are entering the story with a degree of knowledge and a degree of understanding of where it leads to that just means that you can't feel that terror and uncertainty and that that worry in the same way that you do in the moment so i did share this on with someone on reddit this week i say it's a, it's a bit like if you've ever patted your pocket and realized your wallet's missing and in that split second that panic that worry and the things that go through your head with i've lost my wallet and you immediately start thinking of all the issues that's going to cause for you right from I've got to leave. I'm going to be late for work because I'm looking for my wallet now. I'm not going to be able to put petrol in the car. What if someone's stolen it and they're spending my money? Oh, that had my tickets in it that I need for something later this week. What if someone's stolen my identity? Wait a minute. Did I get pickpocket? All of these things go through your head in that second. And it feels like a really big insurmountable problem because you're immediately jumping to the worst things that could happen and all the terrible outcomes. And then if you imagine... Just a second later, you pat another pocket and you realize you just put it in your other pocket. You've got it, you had it the whole time. That worry, that fear, that uncertainty should immediately lift. Now, you'll remember that you were worried about it, but it's very difficult to hold on to that same level of terror and fear once you know that your wallet is completely safe. So, generally speaking, you either really quickly forget that you ever thought you'd lost your wallet, especially if it was only for a second or two. Or at the very most, it's probably going to be a story that you tell when you get to work or when you get home that night and you're talking to your partner about, oh, I thought I'd lost my wallet this morning. I was really worried about it. And it's almost you're telling it like a funny story. But a funny thing happens, and this is real human nature, is that when we tell a story, when we try and convey a story to someone, it's not about the facts and figures. That wouldn't be a story. That would be a report. A story is about the feelings, it's about the change, it's about the emotions and about how you made it feel. So when you're talking to someone about having lost your wallet earlier, 
what you're trying to do is to put them in the moment there, put them in that feeling that you had when you thought your wallet was lost and all these things went through your head. And the way that you do that, if you just tell the story that, oh, I've tapped my pocket and I didn't have my wallet in there and I was a little bit worried and then one second later I found it, you know that the person you're talking to is in no way going to understand the, the worry or the fear you went through in that moment. So what we do is we tend to amplify, we edit, we exaggerate, we add details or try and make it very, very personal in order to convey the true meaning or the true feeling of what happened to the person we're talking to. We're trying to give them a little bit of the emotion of the feeling that we had. And when you do that by adding bits to the story and embellishing parts, a really, really easy place to see this, to understand it, is magic and magic tricks and what people do generally if they've watched magic. So if you, if you went to watch a magician, it could be doing something very, very simple a magician on a table and he's got a coin and he clicks his finger and the coin disappears. Now, if you know how he did it, there's not much story there, but let's assume you cannot work out how he did it. You've watched it and you're absolutely convinced that you've seen some magic or at least something so clever that it can't be explained by any of the, any of the tricks or sleight of hand or things you know that magicians do. You're convinced this person's done something astonishing because it surprised you it has come out of the blue and you're like wow that was amazing now what happens when you go away and try and tell someone what you saw your aim when you tell that story is to give that person the same impact that you had to make them believe that this was a real magic event but you're also well aware of the fact that if I met you and I said I saw a magician this afternoon he had a coin he clicked his fingers and it disappeared into thin air Generally, the person you're speaking to is not going to have anywhere near the level of excitement, amazement or wonder. They're immediately going to be thinking, oh, it was a trick. It went up his sleeve or he pulled it off the table. It wasn't a real coin. So the first issue is that by telling the story truthfully and not embellishing it, you're actually giving a false impression to the person because you want them to believe your reality and your truth. And your reality was that you saw that coin disappear and there could no way he could have done a trick. The second thing that's probably even more worrying is that you're aware this person is probably thinking that you're pretty gullible, you're pretty stupid, you don't understand. And it's very difficult not to feel immediately defensive when you're relaying something like that that you truly believe because you're able to put yourself into the head of the person you're talking to and understand how it looks from our end. So what do we do? And this is a universal truth and everyone does it all the time, not just when they're talking about magic, but virtually throughout life. And that is we're really, really good at constructing stories and narratives and adding bits and adjusting and changing what we're telling to suit the ends. So the means justify the ends or the end. No, <laughs> the ends justify the means. So the ends justify the means. So in, in the case of this magic trick that you've seen, my truth and my reality is that it couldn't have been a trick. I genuinely saw something that was magical or unexplained and I need you to understand that and I want you to feel some of the wonder and shock that I did. So I'm going to add things to the story that didn't actually happen, but I feel justified. I don't feel like I'm lying. I'm sure I'm still telling the truth because actually it's not about the facts. I'm not trying to convey the facts. That's not important. I'm trying to convey the feeling and the wonder. So... Instead of, uh, I might preempt you thinking that it's just a trick and the guy had long sleeves or it went down a table or was too far away to see. So I might retell the story where I would say, instead of saying, oh, this guy was on a stage 20 meters in front of me sitting at a table wearing a suit, I'll say, no, he came and he sat next to me and he had short sleeves on and there was no table and it was just me and him. I might even pretend it wasn't part of a magic show this was just a guy I met I was on tube and this guy came up and he had a coin and I touched the coin I felt it I looked at it he clicked his fingers and it disappeared he had no sleeves on there was no one else in the carriage there was nothing behind him it was bright you name it all the rest of it so you're automatically disqualifying all the reasons that anyone could possibly have to doubt what you're saying and to not believe that you saw real magic because you're convinced the, that you did now that's 
entirely natural. That's what Uncredible Adventures is about. That's why I talk about them being uncredible, because I do that with most of my stories. I tell them in a slightly different order. I give a, a better punchline. I'll brush up what someone said, or I will merge two stories or various things that happened. And that really is the core of good storytelling is to be close enough to the truth but to change the narrative slightly amplify it to distort it to change it just enough that I can give the impact the emotion so whether it's I want it to be funny or I want it to be sad or I want you to understand what happened in the moment there's also a really dark side to that and that's the fake news phenomenon we hear about and this is something that you see on a wider and wider scale when, in the case of the magic trick, we already established there that the facts don't matter. What matters is that A, you don't think I'm gullible and stupid, and B, you understand that I really saw magic. Now, if that is important enough to me, if I feel like that is important enough, then there's probably not a lie too big. I could probably justify to myself, or I might not even realise I was lying to myself, but either way, I could justify telling a story that was extremely different exactly like I said from watching a professional magic show from a long way away to meeting a guy in the street and he just does it off the top of his head so it's worth bearing that in mind whenever you reading something or talking to someone that's their opinion you've got to understand that people would feel absolutely justified in lying if they believe that the impression or the feeling that it gives you is true and valid Anyway, <laughs> I've now probably just established you shouldn't believe anything you hear on this podcast, but this is a podcast meant for leisure and entertainment only. I'm not trying to change your mind about anything. I've certainly got no political agenda or otherwise. And and don't forget the tagline, none of these stories is entirely true. None of these, no. And don't forget my tagline, none of these stories is made up. None of these stories is entirely true. There's something else that I'm trying for the first time on this episode that I'm looking for feedback on. We'll see where it goes. About two years ago, I bought, on a whim, I bought a little dictaphone. And I started recording just everyday conversations with my family. I put it on the table at meal times or in the evening when we were having a chat, I'd record it or when I was talking to the kids I was putting them to bed I'd just record the conversation and that really is it's really a key part in my journey as to how I came to be talking into the microphone now and recording this podcast was these recordings I was making of just everyday life with my family and I, I was only making them for myself and possibly for my kids or for my family to listen to but it became a really important part of my life I, I love listening to audio I there's something about an audio recording that just feels closer to me than even a video, certainly closer than a picture. I, it must be maybe the way my brain works or the lack of distraction. But I started recording all of these goings on in my house. And I've got hundreds of hours of recording, most of which will never see the light of day. I certainly don't have time to go through them and edit them. But every now and again, I, I pull out a recording, I listen to it at random. And it's really nice just to be back in the moment even two years ago or even something that just happened a couple of weeks ago I, I thoroughly recommend you can get a dictaphone really really cheap just start recording your family because one day what's the worst that can happen you might never listen to them but one day you might be really really grateful and when you want to reminisce and when you want to explain to your kids what life was like when they were little or your grandchildren an audio recording of dinner time in your household it's probably going to be such a key piece of that picture. I, On Christmas Day this year, I did the washing up with my mum. She came round for Christmas Day. We did the washing up and I just recorded on a dictaphone us just chatting in that conversation. I know I'm gonna, I already treasure that recording, but there's times when my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, you name it, imagine being able to listen to just a, a conversation now of your great great grandmother that you've never met chatting with your great great granddad doing the washing up so I, I record so much and it's just for personal use one day maybe my kids will listen to it and think of their dear old dad and understand what was happening that's what that's what branched out became this podcast so well actually I, I want to directly talk 
to someone. I want to share some of this a little bit more directly. One of the real key things that I found by recording my family in the way that I did was that, weirdly, it really put me in the moment. And it's strange that I had to think of someone listening to the recording so what I would do is I'd start the recording and I'm thinking about myself listening to this in 10 years time I'm thinking about myself being old and grey and remembering the good times when the kids were little that are just faded memories and listening to these recordings now that clearly is taking me out of the moment and putting me way far in the future but oddly when I come back to that present moment that picture in my head of myself listening to it in 10 years time makes me really present. I think, well, I want to experience this now. If I think this is going to be interesting in 20, 30 years time, when I'm at the end of my life looking back, then I want to experience now. And it's been such a key tool for me to get way more connected with my current life, to be way more grounded, to be way more present in conversations. And it makes everything a treat, even a debrief that I tend to do with my partner after work where we both chat about what we've been doing at work just the fact that I set a dictaphone going sometimes and think of this it, it helps put everything into perspective it makes you live in the moment but it also makes you think do you know what these problems we're talking about am I going to care about them in 20 years no I'm probably not so that's my recommendation get a dictaphone start recording your family fall in love with audio and use it as a tool to put you right in the moment just view yourself through someone else's eyes or your own eyes but as a third person just for a little bit and i hope that you'll see some positive change and the reason that i'm sharing this is that these recordings some of them are pretty good there's some funny things that have happened and i'm not going to go back through the archives because those are incredibly personal but my family's so used to being recorded now and i've got a little bit of equipment for this podcast so i've started setting up proper microphones and things like that i don't do and i think that's the key bit i let people know they're being recorded you've got to let people know it's not fair otherwise so you know make it very clear and most of what I record, I, I will never share, absolutely never share. It's highly personal. We talk about people we know. We talk about very personal things. But every now and again, we talk about something that is funny or shareable. And that's what happened on Saturday night. There's a couple of stories. I was talking to my partner. She told me a couple of stories, one of which was the most uncredible story I've heard in a very very long time she told me an absolute nonsense story tried to convince me it was true and story involves time dilation some kind of wormhole and this was just a what happened today and i called her out on it i didn't say it was uncredible or incredible i wish i had but there's a little bit of snippet that conversation i'm going to put this on the end of this episode it's just a short conversation listen into it let me know if it works. I found it interesting. You'll be able to hear my partner's voice. You'll be able to hear the conversation we have. I'm going to put a couple of those little chats up there. Have a listen to it. If you like it, let me know. If you don't like it, let me know equally. If you're indifferent, well, you won't tell me anything. When I'm going to work out, maybe this is something that works its way into the show. I find it absolutely fascinating. It's my family. This is a funny story. It's an absolute load of drivel. Or is it? Maybe you think I'm being harsh. Maybe you think I'm steamrolling my partner and she's absolutely right and I'm the one talking rubbish. Either way, I think it's worth listening to. I'd love you to have a listen. Let me know what you think and maybe it will become part of Uncredible Adventures moving forward. Just before we start the episode proper here, I've had a couple of people ask me about the name Uncredible Adventures. Now, I have explained where it came from. I think it fits really, really well for what I'm trying to achieve. But actually, Uncredible Adventures wasn't the original working name. When I started to imagine this project, the working title for a very long time was it's going to be called Tales from the Lobby Bar or uh, Tall Tales from the Lobby Bar or something like that. The idea being I spend so much time traveling, I stay in hotels two or three nights a week. And the Lobby Bar, if you've never been in a lobby bar of a hotel i'm gonna give you a recommendation now that it is a place like unlike any other on earth if you're feeling lonely if you're feeling a bit disconnected if you want some human company then the bar in a hotel lobby is a really really good place to be if you imagine you wanted a bit of human company you've got no one to spend your time with no one to go out with and and you think of going to a bar or a pub 
full of people you don't know who know each other. That's actually a pretty lonely place to be and you have to be really, really bold to want to start conversations and, and communicate with people. But a lobby bar, things are completely different because the first thing is that there's no regulars. There's no one who, who's a regular and this is their bar and they know you're a newcomer. Every single person, by definition, the reason they're there, it's a hotel. The reason they're there is, is by definition because they don't live there. So they're staying in a hotel. So first is no regulars. Everyone's new. The other thing, you find more people alone in a lobby bar than you will in, in any normal type of bar or any other place because so many people are traveling and yet there's couples and there's people together. But you also... You will also find a lot of people eating, watching TV or just being on their own because they're traveling, they've got no one to be with. And the fact that they're in the lobby bar when they could be in their bedroom, they could be somewhere private, means they've decided to come to a public place. They want to be around people. Now, they might not all be up for chatting, but there's certainly something sociable. So you get this beautiful atmosphere where no one knows anyone there's there's not much pressure you know you don't go to a lobby bar well certainly I don't go to a lobby bar to pick people up it, it tends to be a pretty safe well-lit environment but people are are there to socialize and just by spending a little bit of time in a hotel lobby you'll find people talk to you you chat to people and everyone's got a story everyone's got something interesting to say I've traveled for several years so I must have had hundreds of conversations with random strangers from all over the world this is the other thing if you want to meet people from different cultures go and stay in a hotel near Heathrow airport you would literally meet people from all over the world who are open to conversation and originally when I started thinking about this podcast I thought well do you know what? I'm going to share the stories that these people tell me because I do anyway becomes part of my conversation someone tells me a really good story a really good anecdote I work out how I can how can I make that my own how can I either pass it off as my own or at least tell it as someone else's story what's the funny side in it and that's what this podcast is it's my conversation my chat so if you met me these are the types of things that I talk about and most of these episodes are inspired by interesting conversations that I didn't know I was going to have but that's where the conversational flow went and what you're getting is one side of it as I recount it how I wish the conversation would have gone if I had no interruptions and you were forced just to listen to me and not chime in but also a real mix of tales and conversations and bits of information from the people that I've met along the way but and, and I still like that name and that's still a big part of what we're doing on this podcast but I went with Uncredible Adventures it just popped into my head one day I went with Uncredible because no one uses that word it is in the dictionary but it's not used for anything so I know I can get the domain uncredibleadventures.com would probably add a part in it but also it's a bit more of a general title. It's unlikely to put anyone off on the inn, whereas Tales from the Lobby Bar sounds intriguing, but potentially people are going to think it's about pubs or uh, lobby. doesn't sound very, very exciting. So I hope you'll agree. Uncredible Adventures is an interesting enough name. And it made it... We were watching Netflix last night and my partner said oh I've started watching this show it's quite good it's like a it's a rom-com type thing she said it's about a guy young guy and he finds out he's got an STD and he has to contact his ex-girlfriends or anyone he's had a relationship with to let them know they need to get tested but it's it's really quite thoughtful it's funny it's quite romantic and thought-provoking because he ends up having these conversations with the people that he spent his life with about their relationships and they have quite frank conversations and they expose the misunderstandings and the things that happen. She said, it's quite interesting, it's good TV. The whole time she was saying this, I was thinking, I've seen this, I've seen this, this rings a bell. I've, and I said to her, have they, they've made this from a book, I'm guessing. She said, oh, I don't think so. So I looked it up and I realised I have seen this. So the whole time she's talking, I'm thinking, I've seen this. I've seen this. I know exactly what it is. I said, this is really, really old. I've seen it. And she said, is it? Yeah. And I said, it's called Scrotal Recall, right? I said, no. It's called Lovesick. I thought this. I said, ah, well, I've watched something called Scrotal Recall, which is almost identical to what you've said. I said, go on, give it a go. And she put it on. 
And it was Scrotal Recall was a programme I watched, I don't know, 10 years ago, very, very long time ago. Eight, yeah, eight years ago, maybe five years ago. It was on Channel 4 and I watched and I know I watched it because I saw that name and it appealed to me. I thought, oh, Scrotal Recall. I was kind of imagining without any other information other than the name and it's a Channel 4 comedy show I thought you know what this has been made by like Rob Grant and Doug Naylor from Red Dwarf or you know it's like the in-between is it some kind of gross out comedy I thought it was going to be really uncomplicated gross out boys comedy men behaving badly reloaded or something like that and actually I watched it and it's a really quite gentle romantic slow funny light-hearted rom-com absolutely did not suit that name so i've looked it up and yeah i'm absolutely right they did launch it it was called scrotal recall which quite a clever name if you think it's about this std and the memories of of who he's had sex with and of course the the film total recall so it's a play on that as well it's a very clever name but it that name made the show an absolute flop because it's a really good show i be honest i don't enjoy it but my partner loves it and it's done really really well since it's been on netflix but it was such a flop because of the name scrotal recall the target market the people that wanted to watch rom-coms were not tuning in purely because it had that name no one was recommended it to each other because no one wanted to say the word that i've said about 20 times now on my podcast I, I can't imagine at some point these executives or whoever it was were sitting with these scripts. They'd made it and they decided to brand it Scrotal Recall and it absolutely flopped. So Netflix bought it for a, for a pittance and filmed a second season and changed the name to Lovesick. And it's been wildly successful now. Well, not wildly successful, but pretty successful. It's doing really well on Netflix. People are watching it. My partner's recommending it to me. So there's a lesson there somewhere. I don't know. We talked about this episode. Do I call it Highland Shames or do I call it Garde Lou? I talked about Uncredible Adventures, a tale from the lobby bar. I hope I've ri- I hope I've hit the right tone. I've certainly not put any references to scrotums or, or genitalia of any sort in the description or the title of this show. Anyway, it's far past time for me to introduce you to the episode. This is the Highland Shames you're listening to Uncredible Adventures. Come and find us on Twitter at UncrediblePod or have a look on the website www.uncredibleadventures.com for all the ways to contact us. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave me a comment. It means a hell of a lot. It'll help people discover the podcast. It also lets me know how we're doing. Send me a message. Send me an email. I'd love to get to know you. And please enjoy this episode. I've got a tradition with my, my two eldest boys, 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, where we, we do a thing every other weekend. One night at least, we call it dude night. And all dude night is, is that we make a commitment to spend some time together doing an activity, watching TV, playing computer games, whatever it is. But I spend time with them, they spend time with me, and we and we make it into a bit of a, a special event, an occasion. We'll, we'll talk about it through the day, discuss what we're going to do. We get dude snacks, so we will buy some some sweets or something to eat to prep ourselves and i'm hoping I'd, i've given up being called dad that went as soon as the the eldest one turned 13 but i'm hoping i can remain relevant and present and part of their life and we can still have some memories um what i'm really hoping is that when they're, they're old they what i'm really hoping is that once they're they've they've grown up and they've left and i'm old they'll want to come back and have a dude night with me and I'll probably really treasure that. So we're doing this on Saturday and one of the programs we frequently watch, in fact, the first program we ever watched on dude night is Bob's Burgers. Bob's Burgers is a, an adult cartoon about a, a, a family that live and work in a little burger restaurant in, a, in a, a key town in, and it fits what we want absolutely perfectly. Great show. It's funny enough and silly enough and cartoonish enough that the kids really enjoy it. But it's also well-made, interesting, thoughtful, gentle, and 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 generally, you know, it's not too racy. Um, there's no, no too too embarrassing to watch with your kids. Great show. We're watching it on Saturday, 
and the family found themselves it's a good example actually of the humor of the show so there's a friend of the the family teddy who's a handyman and a complete loser and he's been working for for several years restoring a boat he's bought a boat he's been working on his weekends to restore this boat and he eventually restores it and takes the family out for a sail and what we find out over the course of the episode is that his wife left him for a man who owns a marina and he's had this dream that he would show up one day in a boat that he's refurbed himself and she would realize how much she missed him and fall back in love so he, he ropes the family along to casually sail past um one thing leads to another the boat ends up nearly sinking and they they crash shipwrecked onto an island that appears abandoned but it has one mansion at the top of a huge hill and they have to make their way up and things are complicated because there's a herd of cows these huge massive big red cows with long shaggy hair and giant broad horns which if you you hopefully picturing now highland cows highland coos and it got me thinking while I was watching it that I immediately recognized those as Highland cows, but it's not something that I've ever really considered. What what makes a Highland cow? Why is it a Highland cow? And even down to some really obvious bits, like the fact that it's called a Highland cow suggests that it comes from the Highlands of Scotland. So that's a geographical region. So effectively, it's the top half of Scotland. And it's a pretty bleak and wild place it's quite far north certainly the the furthest north you can get and the british and the british isles in great britain and united kingdom don't know what we're called in this area of the world anyway it's the, the furthest north you can get it's uh quite high altitude i think in places there's uh it's windy it's cold it's not much daylight or sunlight very rough place to live and it as soon as you think about that you start to realize that actually all the the, the features and the things that make these cows unique are also the things that have been bred into them to make them survive and thrive in a, a really harsh environment. So they've got this long, thick coat of hair that protects them from the the cold and from the wind and from the rain. It hangs down shaggy over their eyes. I did a little bit of reading about this because suddenly I thought it's actually more interesting than I realized and that's the the one thing one of the things that the Highlands is very famous for is midges little biting flies and of course if you if you've got no hands to to, to spot flies away what are you the next best thing you want is shaggy long hair that's gonna hang over your eyes and, and scare the flies away or keep or, or I think it scares them away does it but keep them out of your eyes at least and some of the other Things that, that the cows have going with them. Apparently, they, they, the long hair means that they carry less body fat. They don't need fat for insulation so much. So it's a leaner type of meat, lowering cholesterol. <clears throat> and certainly my 30 seconds on Wikipedia tells me that Queen Elizabeth will only eat beef from Highland cows. Now, that is <laughs> unconfirmed or certainly unconfirmed to me, but an interesting story. And not the only queen that took an interest in Highland cows. So if you... If in any way you're interested now thinking about, oh, I never thought about breeds of cows and what they look like. Um, if you're like me, before I started talking Highland cow, if I'd ask you to imagine a cow, it's possibly black and white spotty cow. But I'd encourage you to just Google image now cow and see what comes up. And what you'd be interested to find is that at least half of the pictures, the cows are not black and white or gray or any other color but they're they're red colors they're they're browny red colors now that apparently has come from queen victoria who who took a trip to the highlands saw a highland cow made a an off-the-cuff comment or a, a fairly low-key comment that she said oh i think I, I think red cows look a bit nicer and and that resulted in selective breeding over years and years where the reddish color this this brown red color that was uh, bred into cows and, and the black colours and the black grey colours that cows had been up until that point was gradually bred out. The other the other thing I thought was very interesting, these Bob's burgers, the, the continuity or uh, was was completely incorrect because one of the things you'll read when you, you read anything about Highland cows is that they are incredibly relaxed. They're a very, very chilled breed of cow. They really do not want any beef. 
<laughs> excuse me <laughs> very very relaxed and one of the reasons for this um is that the, these cows have a very very long history in the highland they'll be traced back all the way to 1200 bc and throughout a lot of their history the people that kept them the farmers that would would keep a cow or two would bring the cow inside the house during the winter both to protect the cow but also to add to the heating from the house you bring a, a 900 kilogram big beast into the house and it would keep the uh, keep the house warm but of course if you bring in something that massive in that's got these huge horns on it the last thing you want is an aggressive and or territorial animal so they've also been bred to be very very chilled and highland we highland cows was one of when i was 15 we went on a family trip over an easter we we drove all the way up to scotland to the lowlands i think but nevertheless to scotland and stayed in a cottage and there was quite a few things my idea of what i would see in scotland thistles and bagpipes and highland cows I, I, I remember distinctly that i didn't see any so i'm not sure certainly in scotland i've never seen a highland cow that was a that was a, a great holiday a really good time my dad just got a new car he got a land rover and was really really keen to to try and look for any opportunity to use it off-road there's quite a few stories i could tell about that but one of my favorite was when we were up in scotland and we saw a ford on the map so a ford a road that goes through a river and we decided to have a go so there were a couple of families um up there but all the kids piled into my dad's car lined himself up put the the high ratio gears on or whatever you do and and drove this car into the the ford which was deeper i think than expected almost immediately water started flowing under the doors and he had these these light beige colored carpets <laughs> this dirty water started flooding in under the doors so we the kids were all going crazy we all jumped up on the chair and were shouting i know underneath the passenger seat there was a this car had a cd player with a six disc cd changer if you can remember those you you'd loaded your discs up into a cd changer under the under the chair and could could select then on the on the head unit which cd you wanted to play at any time and yeah the, that got completely destroyed by this water rolling under the door although we did get out i think we reversed out i don't think he went to the other side one of one of the day trips we took while we were up there was to the glenfiddich distillery whiskey distillery and i remember being really struck as a 15 year old that we were walking around effectively a food production factory but they did guided tours and one at one part they had a huge these huge big vats where they're they're boiling up the I should know this i've done the factory tour i should be able to tell you exactly what goes into whiskey but it's bar, malted barley that sounds about right yeah malted barley which they they put in these huge vats with water and heat them up and mash them up and as you go around on the tour the tour guide opens a window opens a top window on on some of these vats and you can look in and smell the the barley it smells amazing and what struck me as a 15 year old and I'll stress that I didn't do it but I realized that how easy it would be to contaminate one of these you know the, these vats the size of size of a house full of liquid that's going to become whiskey you could easily drop something in there and and for a long time that was my one of my anecdotes 15 that's a cool thing to say when you're a 15 year old i don't care what anyone says uh, i remember going back to school with a bit of a swagger and i would tell people i'd say oh we i went to the glenfiddich distillery and i spat in a vat of malted barley and that's going to go and make you know thousands of bottles so if i was you in 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 14 years time or 12 years time when they when they finally bottle it up i wouldn't be buying any glenfiddich whiskey i was stressed i did not do it and and i also don't, I don't think that's such an impressive story now but certainly at the time you probably get a bit of the color of what <laughs> what i thought was cool what was important to me now you can't visit scotland definitely not as a 15 year old boy without ending up in a in a tourist gift shop or two and one of the key things that you probably associate with Scotland is tartan material. And everywhere you go in all of these gift shops, they will sell 
several different types and they're all linked to different clans or, or families. And and you flick through the menu, you look at the posters and you either go for one that you really like the look of or, or if you're 15 and you realise that your mum's maiden name is Boyd, you spot that there is a tartan for Boyd. And not only is there a tartan for Boyd, but it's a really cool one. It's exactly what you think of when you think of a tartan. So it's red with sort of blue and green checks on it. It, it. It's the most classic tartan or the one you can think of. And the reason that it's the one that you can think of is it's virtually identical to another tartan, which is Stuart, which is Royal Stuart. And again, coming back to the Queen, the Royal Stuart tartan is the tartan of, she not wear it very, I don't think I've ever seen her wear it, but apparently is the, the tartan that the Queen wears reading these posters and looking at this and thinking, oh, that's my tartan, and, and, and realising suddenly that my mum's maiden name potentially is linked to a little bit of history. And you get a little bit deeper and realise that there's kind of a dotted line between the Boyd and the Stuart tartans. There's a dotted line. And um, the best that I could remember from back there was that these were sister houses, you know, the sister clans that were very, very close. But, of course, the Stuarts, is, are the royal Stuarts? That's a royal family, and I was in the sister family to the royal family. That became another one of my anecdotes, one of my claim to fame. Something that I, I tried to use to make myself seem interesting and popular. When it when it ran something along the lines of, I would say, "Look, I am my my, my mum's maiden name is Boyd. Boyd is a, a sister family to the royal Stuarts. The royal Stuarts, of course, have a, a claim to the throne." in England or did have a claim to the throne at one point. So effectively, I must be maybe, you know, three thousandths in line to the throne. And it only has to be one big global event or, or you know, 3,000 people have to have to die. And you're looking at the next king of king of England. So this thread that I went down recently with the Highland cows, I ended up remembering that story and thinking about that. And, and decided to look and find the truth. What well, What is the link between the Boyds and the Tartans? So I looked up a little bit of history, and, and in, indeed the, the Stuarts were Stuarts were royal. They held the throne in Scotland and in England. They lost the throne. They tried to claim it back and, and didn't quite get it. And the Boyds were very, very close. So you trace it all the way back. There's a, a chap called Simon Fitzalan, Simon the Fair, who was either the, let's say, he was, he was probably a nephew of someone called Walter Fitzalan, who is the High Steward of Scotland, and he is recognised as the founder of what became the Royal House of Stuart. So, yeah, effectively, the uncle of my ancestor became the founder of this, this royal family. And that link gives means that a lot of people who who, who are Boyd's or who trace their... their trace their family back to the Boyds will will adopt the Royal Stuart Tartan, which is mainly, be, I think, because it's the coolest Tartan. But although there is a separate Boyd Tartan, that's very, very... And that was the end of that. I w wasn't going to try and do the maths. I'm sure three thousandths in line to the throne is is, is probably more like three million. But by this stage and by the amount of times, the, the blood has probably got diluted. But... I spotted something. I, I, I tried to have a look and try and work out when did when did the Stuarts lose the throne? When, how, when, and how did they they lose them? And I discovered something. It's a much more interesting story than who was fighting for the, for the throne. It didn't involve. And there was uh, just just to give a little bit of background. There was an event called the Jacobite Uprising or Jacobite Rising of seventeen. 45 and this was an attempt by Charles Stuart to regain the British throne for his father James Francis Edward Stuart and it didn't work it culminated in the, the battle of Culloden which was a, a slaughter of the Scottish troops and English rule uh, continued in Scotland at that point now sure there's a, a lot of interesting stories around that but that's not what the podcast is about and that's not what I'll talk about today because what something that directly followed this failed Jacobite rising was an event called the Highland Clearances. And I'd never, never heard of the Highland Clearances before. 
but they they seem to be one of the most horrific events that I can imagine. So at the end of this Jacobite uprising, when finally there was a, a small amount of peace and some of the clans and clans people managed to return to their land and continue trying to farm the Highlands. And I mentioned already the Highlands was such a it's such a brutal and bleak place. It's cold, it's windswept, the the soils are thin. Um you you have to work really, really hard to farm that land and to eke a living out of it. And for the people, the clansmen and the the people that lived and worked on the highlands, starvation was a very real threat. So they lived their life constantly in the margins and on the edge of knowing that a poor summer or a poor harvest or a little bit of misfortune would potentially lead to to starvation. They didn't have many other options. So you've got a group of people here who are already really struggling to make ends meet, to survive, staring starvation in the face every day and, and, and farming some really, really brutal and hard lands just to to try and put food on the table it's it it's, it's it's almost difficult to imagine how that felt in our privileged lives now where other than it being a sort of abstract thing we don't don't tend to think about famine or struggling to survive but things were already hard for these people and the highland clearances they suddenly got a lot harder so the the aftermath of this war was that the the English wanted to ensure that the the clans and the Scots could never group together again, would never have that national pride and national uh, unity in order to raise armies and, and have the motivation to, to, to fight again and to, to try and reclaim the, clo- the, the crown. So the first thing they did was start to attack the culture, the absolute foundations of, of, of what made these people, these people. There was in 1747, it was called the Act of Proscription. And it was a, a law that, among other things, you imagine these, you imagine, <laughs> you've probably got an image in your head of a, a, a Highlander farmer. How are you going to hurt this guy? You know, how can you dissolve this guy's culture? Well, the first thing they did was to outlaw bagpipes. <laughs> If you think if you think of Scotland bagpipes features up there somewhere and they outlawed bagpipes. They outlawed the teaching of Gaelic, which was the language. Um and they outlawed tartan. They they made it illegal to have your clan tartan or to dress in a traditional way. So this was a direct attack on the way of life of these people, on their culture, on everything that was their their identity and their 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 made them a a group of people and they tried to completely eradicate and eliminate and completely dismantle this ancient culture which must have been so difficult to live through and I think of social media and the news and um, TV and everything we have now you can feel very disconnected even in this world, but imagine back then there was no safe spaces for people to 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 talk or to cling on to their their culture. You would have been incredibly isolated in very small communities. Only a handful of people you ever spoke to or contacted, and then you have a lot of the things that make you part of your culture identity are, are outlawed, and that was only the start of it. So. You're already on living on the breadline. You're already starving. You're probably weary from endless wars. Your culture is under attack. And then the landowners, the people that owned the highland, where these clans lived and worked and, and raised these small farms, realised that they could get, they could earn much more money by keeping sheep on the land than they were earning by keeping farmers who are allowing farmers to work the land and charging them rent now that's quite shocking in itself but the calculations were quite simple look one you know you can on a a small scale farm where you're, you're trying to grow some crops and keep some animals 
you demolish all of that, you can move. You can move in a hundred sheep. You could sell wool. You can sell meat. You only need one shepherd to look after thousands and thousands of sheep. And this is what, sadly, this is what became the Highland clearances. And it was just these land owners that wanted to make more money from the land that they owned and decided to clear out these marginalised and culturally attacked and, and, and already living on the breadline people. And they didn't do it nicely. So at that point, there were, there were families that would have been living in the same cottage for over 500 years. And they were thrown out. They were by force. So they, the landowners would hire militia or military people to come, um, throw people straight out 500 years tradition. You're thrown out on the street with no support, nowhere to go. They would demolish the cottage immediately because they didn't want to risk anyone being able to move back in. They were going to move sheep on the land. So they would, would smash the cottage down and throw you out into the countryside where there was nothing. And, and most of the people that this happened to would found themselves driven, um, almost literally driven by, by these these landlords and the people they hired to, to brutalize the people they wanted to evict without warning and without recompense and without um, any type of humanity, uh, they, they drove them down towards the sea where, they, they, where those that were able to would started to, to again, uh, <laughs> very northern, northernmost sea, again, bleak and harsh, but they managed to try and eke out a living and try to survive by fishing and becoming kelp farmers or, or working in the kelp industry and i had to look this up but the kelp industry effectively kelp is seaweed if you burn it you get the you get ash from it and the ash was used for for various things so you'd sell it and it would be, be mixed during the making of glass for instance it was one of the minor ingredients which i think tells you a little bit about the the highlands are huge you know the areas that this happened we're talking thousands of people got thrown out of their cottages and then tried to, to work in an industry that was providing a very small amount of um, product that was used by you know, down in London for, for making glass. So you imagine the size of the glass industry at that stage, the, the, you know, tiny, tiny little industry. But these, these people tried to, tried to find a way. It was already harsh and, and difficult. It became more harsh and difficult. And then in the 1840s, potato blight so there was a potato famine and it made the people that had already been forced out of their farms and their cottages and were trying to scrape a living in in coastal towns even more difficult and anyone that was left on the land um was falling behind on rent or things like that and that this is when the highland clearances really ramped up to their maximum speed to give you an idea of the the scale of this, it's quite hard sometimes to to think about. You know how many people did this, and this blows my mind. So at the height of the clearances, as many as two thousand crofter cottages were burned each day. So these landlords and 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 we're talking about yeah burned. So they would you would you would wake up to your door being hammered down by armed men. They'd throw you out of your cottage with only what you could grab and they'd set fire to it immediately to make sure that you could never go back. And some of this that's documented, I'll do a, I'll do a call out. There was, there was a, a large amount of land that was owned by the Duchess of Sutherland and her husband, who's the Marquis of Stafford. And between 1811 and 1821, they forcefully evicted around 15,000 people in order to move in 200,000 sheep. And they did this in a cruel, callous way. They threw people out with literally nowhere else to go. People froze to death. So eld or infirm or people who weren't able to, to travel and to move, they just left them where they felt. People froze to death. Um, there's at least one recorded instance where an elderly couple were burnt to death inside their cottage because they weren't quick enough to get out they were they, these people were riding 
into town setting fire to the cottages to get the people to run out and leave the cottages and people burned to death inside them just it, it can you uh, what do you say how can you imagine it 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 beggars belief and and then what happened was a lot of these people relocated or were forced to relocate by the coast there was a potato famine they were really poor and there are records where some people got sold as slaves abroad others some of the landlords started to pay people to emigrate so started sending people out but this was not not necessarily voluntary in some cases potentially it was but actually this was the easiest way for these landlords just to get rid of their problem which was thousands of starving people on their land they started paying to send people aboard but it was not not always voluntary so there's a case where in 1851 1500 people um were were tricked told they they were told they were coming to a meeting about land rents and when they were there they were attacked they were overpowered they were tied up and forced onto a ship to america that was it off you go um start your start your new life there was one case where the isle of rum was completely cleared of everyone who lived there they were all paid uh, or or sent to canada traveling on a ship called the james to to dock at halifax um and when they arrived in canada every single one of them had typhus but and that's that's the story that's the the that's the story of the highland clearances where people were firstly dehumanized had their culture taken from them forced out from their homes that they'd lived in for 500 years driven to the brink of starvation and death were burned to death in some cases or left to to die and then were forcibly forcibly evicted from the country and emigrated to other countries and this is why um if you if you are an american or a canadian there are so many such a high proportion of people that can trace their ancestry back to these ancient clans of scotland and i don't think anyone no one no one bothered to keep around. why why would you these you know these subhumans that you're trying to wipe out no one bothered to keep a record of how many people but somewhere around 70,000 people were um some of them voluntarily a lot of them forcefully sent out into America and Canada and yeah so they 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 say there's actually more people who can trace their ancestry back to a clan uh, a highland clan in Scotland live outside of America born and bred outside of Scotland sorry than than inside of Scotland and the highlands themselves now if you uh, ever visit and drive through you can absolutely see the result of these highland clearances because they are still largely untouched and uninhabited so apart from the the, the coastal towns which were were the results of where these these people were were driven to to the coast and to the very edges of the the highlands there's very very few building structures settlements or homes anywhere across the highlands now bit of a double edged sword cuz it it remains a, a relatively um wild and untouched piece of piece of the world which there there's not many of them left it it's probably one of the last great wildernesses but what a what a what a stain what what a a stain on the history and yeah very very difficult to to read about and to hear about and I'm probably glad I didn't look into it when I was 15 but it's it really changed my I've not you know I'm not so sure if I if I want to claim to be of 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 royal blood or so another thing that that Scotland is famous for uh, whiskey scotch whiskey and if you if you really like scotch whiskey then don't listen to this next bit now because i thought i quite liked it i thought i was interested in single malts of been fortunate enough to try a few interesting ones and and buy a few bottles over the years but i watched a clip and i'm going to put this up on um on twitter which is at in uncredible pod or on instagram uncredible adventures or on the blog on the website www.uncredibleadventures.com and it's a short clip from program this that's life and it's Esther Ranston she's out on the out on the streets in the in the 70s i guess it is and she got on a tray all these shot glasses and some of them contain whiskey and some of them contain brandy and she's stopping people in the street and asking them to taste them and tell her which is which and no one 
can. Not one person that she talks to can taste the difference between whiskey and brandy. So I tried it at home. I pulled my own. And if you sip whiskey and sip brandy, I couldn't tell the difference either. And I tried it on my partner. She quite she she likes alcohol a lot more than I do. She couldn't either. And it's completely destroyed whiskey for me or brandy for me. So hopefully if you're into whiskey, you can. But try it. Give it a go. Pour you, blind pour yourself uh, some brandy, some whiskey, taste them side by side, see if you can tell which is which. Look, the worst, the worst that can happen is that you taste them and realise you can tell the difference. Oh, and do you want to hear something beep? I'll tell you, should interview her one day. Um, <laughs> so there's no signal at Rowena at all. You have to be on the Wi-Fi. There's no signal. So we went in and Ella connected one phone to the Wi-Fi so that we could still get messages and then we just did what we needed to do. Um, And then when we left and got in the car, all of the phones we had, and my watch died today during the day, all of the phones we had all said ten past five and we were like, oh my God, how did we take so long just to make three beds? Right. And we did it This story. We were like, what the hell? And then two phones. Stop. Your, this story feels like it's going to be that the time wasn't ten past five, but yeah, all of your watches were simultaneously yeah, wrong. All, on the... all of the mobiles we had, and we have four phones. You no, know, you're we're talking honestly, because we no, started. We were saying, right, ask Ella when she's next here. This is how we were saying. Shut. I said to Ella, shut up. How was it five past five? How have we been in there so long? Seventeen oh five. Yeah, and we and we were like, what your, the your... hell? Okay. Right, then. and then I was like, "Hang on, what's the time on the car?" The car said five past four. <laughs> so I looked at Ella. She looked at me, and we're like, "Huh?" And then, ping, we got signal. Three of the phones went back to four o'clock, but one of them was stuck on five o'clock. Ella had to turn her phone off and turn it back on. What is that? Your phone went out of signal. Yeah, and had been... and it added an hour onto the time. <laughs> it's hundred percent. It was so. But you are, wait, you are chronically sleep deprived. You do like things that someone who would only do because they, can't, I can't even think. You know, you met you flipping order a takeaway to the wrong house <laughs> or some other thing that causes me huge trouble. <laughs> but but you're sticking. You're so you're absolutely sure that Ask what Ella, happened is yeah. your, your phones all like the start of a horror movie. We were, how were we in there that long? Yeah, quite scary. I'm going to look this up. It's like some kind of group delu- Honestly, mass delusion. So this client waiting hit, outside. You Darren we browned were... each other there. Hypnotised each other. Ooh, Maybe. What, what if time was running backwards? Well, we thought we'd lost it anyway. You had. You had. And you then, must have. I don't, and then, uh, no, I don't believe. 